they don't make films like that anymore, do they, Daniel Mumby? No, although it's interesting if you look at summer holidays, the kind of history of how the summer movies change, because, of course, that came out in February in uh, whichever year it was. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yes. in those days, the summer movie was to remind people of the summer rather than to actually make them go out. You know? Yes, make you look forward to it, indeed. Yes. Anyway, yes, so live from Annick, it's Richard Dell with the third hour of The Breakfast Show. It's the movie hour. And almost live from Halifax, it's good morning to our film critic, Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard. Right, great to have you here. Hope you can hear me. I can hear you. Yeah, I can hear you fine. Right. Now, we haven't rehearsed this. Ha, <laughs> ha. At all. So, shall we have a quick look at what's on at the Playhouse this week? To see Why if not? you know any of them. Uh, first of all, uh, tonight at the Playhouse, they've got Meek's Cutoff yes, Certificate that's, PG. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting um, sort of low-budget Western, which I think won a prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Um, it stars Michelle Williams, who was most recently in Blue Valentine, and it's an interesting um, story about the settlers who come to America and they... Uh, they're taking a journey across the plains and they get lost and they end up having to decide, do we trust someone who's incompetent, who got us into this mess, or do we actually trust a Native American? So it's sort of, there are comparisons with Dances with Walls, but I think it's better than that. So, to be recommended, then? Yeah, it, it sounds pretty good, even though it is very yes. generic. So, 7.30, that starts at the Playhouse, mm -hmm. and the box office number is Annick 510785. Meanwhile, the morning's in Berwick uh, tomorrow afternoon, 2 o'clock and 5 o'clock. It's Red Riding Hood. Yeah, now... It's directed by Catherine Hardwick, who directed the first of the Twilight films, and if you go slightly further back, also made a film called 13, which is an interesting um, sort of coming-of-age film. Um, my feelings about this when I reviewed this, I think it was a couple of months ago with you, is that it, it's kind of Twilight light. I mean, it's an interesting idea to take the Red Riding Hood story sort of back before the grim fairy tale, so putting the werewolf elements back into it. And, you know, a lot of fairy tales have very no Freudian or psychosexual undercurrents, even though obviously they precede the work of Sigmund Freud by a few thousand years. Um, I think that in the end, this film is quite creaky and hammy, but if you're a fan of either Catherine Hardwick or Amanda Seyfried, who plays the lead, actress, who plays the lead then I think you'll find it a passable couple of hours. Good. And then on Monday, uh, 1 o'clock and 8 o'clock, uh, one I think we agreed wasn't quite as good as the original, um, Arthur, with Russell Brand. Yeah, and I'm... I'm still really from the disappointment, to be honest. I mean, I think that Russell Brand is slightly funnier here than he has been in the past, but you didn't need to remake the 1981 film because that's one of Dudley Moore's finest performances, and he makes it genuinely fun. Right. And the Maltings box office number is 01289 330999. Shall we do the top ten, then? You might need to call 999 after watching the remake of Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea. Right. Uh, Shall we, uh, shall we do the top ten? Why not? Right, number ten, I've got Thor on my, my website, anyway. Yeah. Um, that's what I've got here. It's, it's had a really good run at the cinemas. Um, I think it's gone some way to help rehabilitate Frankenstein, which got a kicking first time out. I think that Branagh is an inherently populist filmmaker, even when he's doing something Shakespearean or operatic, which this sort of is. And, um, yeah, I think that he's better at doing comedy than a lot of people realise, and I look forward to his next work. Great. Fast Five at number nine. Have I heard of this one before? <laughs> it's been in for weeks and weeks, Richard. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. I mean, it's no, we didn't need the fourth one, let alone the fifth one, but it's okay as sort of empty-headed, passable entertainment. It's, Rio is at number eight. It's still there. Um, I dare say there might be a sequel of some sort. Now, I mean, it, it's okay. It didn't need to be in 3D, but, you know, I've got no problem with people taking their kids to see it. At number seven is Ready. Um, this is a Bollywood film, so it wouldn't have been widely screened. Um, I had a look 
I went for reviews of this, and the only one I could find, you know, it's, a, it's a film about uh, an arranged marriage in which the uh, the woman's sort of involved with the mafia. And did you ever see John Landis's film Into the Night? Uh, no, I don't think I did. No, because that's with Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer, and uh, Jeff Goldblum drives to an airport in the middle of the night because he can't sleep, and Michelle Pfeiffer lands on his car, and it turns out that she's you know caught up with the Iranian mob. You know, that's a very good comedy. But Ready sort of looks like a cheap rip-off of that, so it doesn't look promising. So are you a Bollywood fan? No, I'll, I guess I, my knowledge of Bollywood is very, very limited. Um, and I do generally go by the trailers in these cases, but it, it, does, it doesn't look all that original, to be honest. Right. Okay. Number six, and I see it's got 100% on the Rotten Tomatoes website, is Senna. Yeah, I actually saw this yesterday on my way down here, and I'm really glad I did. It's really, really great, and uh, it was film of the week last week. It's a very interesting documentary about um, the life and, uh, well, the life and death of Ayrton Senna, let's face it. I think most people will know about um, the circumstances under which he uh, met his end, but he, it's a very interesting film which is made entirely from sort of stock footage and archive footage of him, including some very rare home video, which I'm surprised they managed to get hold of. I think that it's a very interesting example of making, of taking something televisual and making it cinematic, but you don't have to be an F1 fan to enjoy it, because there's all sorts of things in there about uh, religious devotion and the actual physical act of racing. So presumably it's making the main cinemas as well as the uh, the Tyneside to this world, then, if it's gotten to the top ten. Yeah, I, I suspect it is, and I'm, I'm really glad that the documentary of such good quality is taking so much money. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Right, number five, Eyes Wide Open. Now, I think this is... You remember a couple of weeks ago we had um, a discrepancy on Rotten Tomatoes where they thought the company men had come back into the top ten, but it turned out to be not correct. Yeah. This is another example of that, because I... There was a film called Eyes Wide Open, which was a Jewish uh, family drama that came out about six or seven months ago. And I thought it couldn't possibly be that one, and it isn't. This is, um, and I, I, this is Eyes Wide Open, which is a JLS concert film in 3D. And, um, you know, what do you say? It's JLS in 3D. If you like that sort of thing, you'll go. If you won't, you'll stay away. Well, I suppose we can have a JLS song to finish the programme, can't we? Oh, <laughs> Trust me to give you ideas. <laughs> right, fair enough. Uh, at least so it's not. Uh, is, was it Eyes Wide Shut, that uh, infamous one with what's his name and who, uh, whoever she was? Anyway. Stanley Kubrick. Film, yes. Yeah. Which is massively underrated, isn't yeah. it? Uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid 2. Uh, which is all right. I mean, neither you or me are the target audience, and it's nothing to write home about, but it, as middle of the road, child friendly slapstick, it kind of does its job. Right. Number three, uh, down from number two last week, Pirates of the Caribbean. And it's interesting to see how quickly it's dropping. I mean, there were loads of people who, I, on the strength of the first three Pirates films, would have expected it to hang around at either at the one or two for a few weeks. I think it demonstrates that people are, people are more wary this time around and are rejecting the 3D, which we'll come on to again when we talk about the hangover. But no. In terms of the film, I think it's rubbish, albeit perhaps not as rubbish as the third one. Yeah, because it took sort of zillions of pounds the first week, didn't it? It was sort yeah, of dropping I mean, down yeah, quite yeah. quickly. Yeah, and you, um, yeah, the first week takings are usually pretty high because of the marketing campaign, but, it, you know, marketing hype can only take you so far, and, you know, the second week is, once the word of mouth has got out, that's when you kind of really see what a film is worth. Down from number one to number two, The Hangover Part Two. Which is equally hideous. I mean, it's essentially the first film with all the gags done in a way that's cruder and more vulgar and, and there's a bit more racism in there. I mean, it's, I don't know what possible incentive you'd have for watching it, but it does demonstrate that people want to see 2D films rather than no. 3D because that overtook Pirates on its first week and it's still doing better than it. Everybody wants a monkey. 
Number one. I'll take your word for that. Yes. Number one, X-Men First Class. Which is fine. I mean, it's, it's probably the best of the X-Men series insofar as Brian Singer's efforts are quite uneven, even if they try and try and make some interesting ideas. It still has its problems in terms of, you know, the duplicity towards women and the fact that there's too many characters. But, you know, I think that Matthew Vaughan's a good, solid director. It's not as good as Kick-Ass or Stardust, which were his two previous films, but he does bring something of an independent spirit to a big comic book franchise, and I think it will be good fun. Just don't expect a masterpiece. Right, so, recommendation. Directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, who had previously done the original version of Planet of the Apes and had won the Oscar for Best Picture for Patton two years after that. And, of course, Patton was the film for which George C. Scott won the Best Actor Oscar, but he turned it down, famously. He was one of only two people, the other being Marlon Brando, who turned down his Oscar for you know, various political reasons. Um, starring Gregory Peck and Laurence Olivier, whose performances we'll come on to later, and made for about... 12 million dollars and only just got its money back the first time around i think it has since kind of made a profit through television sales and so forth so the story is um laurence olivier in one of his kind of twilight era performances not twilight as in vampire films but as in the end of his career um he plays ezra lieberman who is an elderly nazi hunter modeled loosely on simon wiesenthal who is based in Austria and has sort of lost his sense of drive. He lives with his sister. They're struggling to pay the bills. There's no water leaking in from every orifice in the apartment. Uh, one day he gets a phone call from a young man played by a very young Steve Gutenberg, who you'd probably know best from the Police Academy films. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and he play, he's, and this, uh, this young man has been sort of uh, hiding out in Argentina. He stumbled along a group of what he believes to be ex-Nazis. Head among them is the... Uh, the infamous Dr. Josef Mengele, who is played by Gregory Peck, and uh, in trying to sort of tape their conversation in this big mansion house, he gets discovered and means a sticky end. And Olivier gets sent his tape and sort of picks up that there's some kind of sinister plan going on involving the murders of 94 men, all in their mid-60s, and Olivier has to discover what's going on and stop Gregory Peck before it's too late. Shall I do the trailer? I think, yeah, that's your cue. Yeah. History has shown how one man with a dream can turn the world into a nightmare. Can history repeat itself? The boys from Brazil starts where that nightmare left off. But for the dream to live again, 94 men must die. Gregory Peck is the architect of that dream. Lawrence Olivier is the man who must destroy it before it destroys the world. He betrayed you! He betrayed the Aryan race! from Brazil are, only that they are not science fiction. Thirty years the world has forgotten, and you persist and persist. Well, not at guards now, madame. You're a prisoner. The time is the present. The people exist. The threat is real. A 
operation has been cancelled. No. Your operation has been cancelled. I'm continuous. Barry is dead. Heliberman. <laughs> Only you can decide if it's a dream or a nightmare. But be warned, if history can repeat itself, so can man. A total of 94 assassinations. Look for the boys from Brazil before they look for you. Not the most subtle trailer, was it, Daniel? No, not even the shortest either. I, I take it that's the theatrical trailer rather than a radio one. Yes, I think it probably was. <laughs> yeah, but that, that, that sort of gives you a very good idea of the tone of the film, which we'll, which we'll come on to. Um, so what were your first impressions from hearing that? Um, I can actually remember seeing the film. Um, I mean, from the, the impressions from the um, from the trailer, is it's uh, all a bit dark and a bit sinister, isn't it? And, uh, you know, lots of shouting. Yes, and, um, I, and I, I thought it was a brilliant film, so I did it, I really enjoy it. At uh, it reminds me of there's you know, a lot of the uh, sound of the films of that era. It wasn't always the most subtle, though, was it? No, I mean, just to start to get into this, there is a very long history in post-war cinema about sort of using Nazis as villains in any sort of capacity. I mean, you can sort of look at things as varied as well. Amon Gerth in Schindler's List, the uh, Gestapo character in Raiders of the Lost Ark, who's much more pantomime, or even if you go into the kind of the sleazy underbelly of cinema and the work of Tinto Brass, who made a film called uh, She-Wolf of the SS, which is, well, I think it speaks for itself. They've, they've kind of become the, the stock villain in Hollywood, and, you know, because their accents and their mannerisms are so easy to recognize and replicate, so you can have a very broad range of villainous characters, and they can be sort of cold and ruthless and hearty, or they can be sort of scenery-chewing cannon fodder. And I think the thing about The Boys from Brazil is that it kind of attempts to have it both ways, and while it never quite manages to balance the serious and the silly, it is still quite good fun, and it does, in the way of most of Ira Levin's work, it does pack something of a punch, which we'll come on to towards the end. Considering the context in which the film was made, it's fair to assume, and I think you'd probably agree with this, that the film probably carried more weight then than it does now. I don't. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it did. Yes, I mean, I think uh, you, you listen to it now, and particularly the trailer, and it all sort of fat sounded just a little bit dated. But I guess of the time, it was uh, it was a great film. I think. Yeah, I mean, to, to set the context, this is about sixteen, maybe fifteen years when they were making it. Uh, years after the capture of Adolf Eichmann, who was. Now, that big sort of almost, well, it wasn't a show trial, but a big uh, trial in Israel, Simon Wiesenthal, like I say, on whom Laurence Olivier's character is based, had spent years and years tracking him down and finally found him in Argentina. So it was, it was still fair to believe that there were several ex-Nazis hiding out in Latin America, sort of, you know, creating sinister plots to take back what they deemed was rightfully theirs. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, still, people still write about it. I'm a big fan of uh, the books of W.E.B. Griffin, and uh, quite a few of his uh, his books have gone back to this, and he's sort of writer of the 90s and 
probably the first half of this decade he's sort of retiring a bit now but um he very much um kept going back to this you know the, sort of the nazi cells in uh, particularly argentina um so it's uh, it's an issue that keeps uh, keeps coming back doesn't it yeah because there have been whole books written on was it called the rat lines which are the the escape routes between germany and argentina yeah yeah, yeah. so you have that that sort of grounding in reality you also have the kind of the science fiction end of it, which is that this was about 20 years before cloning became palpably possible with, well, Dolly the Sheep is the most obvious example. But because it was still in the realm of science fiction, because we, there was the possibility that we could clone humans, but we hadn't managed it yet, the fact that we hadn't managed it sort of made it all the more terrifying because we didn't know what the consequences would be. I mean, now that we know, you know more about stem cell research and about the consequences of cloning animals in terms of lifespan we we it's slightly less threatening although the moral issues are still the same so you have those two kind of those weighty nuggets in reality to consider then you have to take into account the talent on either side of the camera because you've got an oscar-winning director who also has you know one foot in science fiction because of his involvement in planet of the apes you've got ira levin who was like i say one of the best pulp novelists of his day you know anyone who wrote rosemary's baby and the stepford wives is fine in my book and then the, the two main performances, I mean, Gregory Peck was, you know, the great Hollywood veteran. You know, he'd done To Kill a Mockingbird. He'd worked with Alfred Hitchcock on a couple of occasions. So he, he knew his craft. And on the other hand, you've got Laurence Olivier, who, for many people, is still the greatest English stage actor of all time. So with all this sort of, this level of expectation, you could be forgiven from sort of um, viewing it today for being a little bit disappointed because there is a clash between... On the one hand, this weighty uh, subject matter and the serious talent behind the camera, you know, proper actors. And between, so between that and the essentially silly nature of the story, I mean, it has neither the grace or the poise to be 100% serious and straight ahead. But on the other hand, it's not knowingly ridiculous in the way that Flash Gordon is. And although some of the sillier moments might produce the odd belly laugh in the way that Mike Hodges film did, I think for the most part it's unintentional. Um, the fact that it's silly comes about mainly from the various contrivances in the plot. I mean, you can sort of argue about these as being inherently something which... You, I mean, there's a, there's a whole argument that science fiction is, an, is inherently ridiculous, and you sort of have to get beyond that in order to buy into any of the ideas put about by Arthur C. Clarke or Philip K. Dick or whoever, whoever you choose to pick on. And there is great potential in the idea of, you know, not to give too much away, but old Nazis cloning Hitler to bring back their great empire and enslave the world all over again. The problem is that when they actually have to get into the nitty-gritty of how the technology for this would work, that starts to falter, because we're asked essentially to believe that, because um, there's a sequence in the film about three-quarters of the way through when um, a character played by Bruno Gantz, who sort of gets the battle exposition role, shows Laurence Olivier how you know, modern-day, as in 70s, cloning technology would work, and saying, okay, now this is the cutting edge, this is what's available now, we are now on, you know, we are at the cutting edge of science. But we're also asked to believe that in order for the scheme to work, that kind of technology would have had to be available about 25 years earlier as well, because otherwise how would Joseph Mengler have come up with the idea in the first place? He would have just taken some of Hitler's blood in the hope that he could maybe one day do it. Um, then you get sort of other trifles in the plot, I mean, to do with the the actual mystery element of Laurence Olivier's character going across the world, you know, tracking down these boys and you know, trying to find out what's happening to them. So even if he was the most highly skilled Nazi hunter in the world, and now he's, he's a fairly convincing portrayal, albeit in a hammy kind of way, it seems quite unfeasible that Laurence Olivier could sort of pick up the trail very quickly, 
by simply asking for newspaper clippings of civil servants' obituaries and sort of joining all the dots. Um, then you get the idea of, you know, Mengele's plan involves the conditioning of all these young clones, but the thing is that why the conditioning starting with the fathers being murdered, why, do, no, why are you starting from such a relatively arbitrary point? And then, as a spoiler issue, you've got the issue of, well, where's all the money coming from? Because on, although there's been loads written about the idea of um, the Swiss banks laundering Nazi gold during the Second World War and the fact that they were still able to get it out in the 60s, it is quite hard to believe that you know, Gregory Peck and James Mason could live in South America so lavishly with sort of immaculate white suits and massive cocktail parties without anyone realising that they're there. Yeah, I mean, there's something about, you know, you, you have to sort of suspend disbelief a little, don't you? Yeah. I, well, I don't think it gets in the way of enjoying it, though. Yeah, it's a little bit more than that. I mean, it, you do have to suspend and disbelief quite a lot, but like I say, once you get beyond that, you, you do find The Boys from Brazil quite enjoyable. The key for me to understanding the film is in the two central performances. I mean, on the one hand, you've got Gregory Peck, who only who two years before this has sort of restarted his career with uh, The Omen. Would you have seen The Omen first time around? Uh, I'm not sure I was old enough. Right. <laughs> you didn't sneak into an <laughs> certificate film? Nah, as uh, if I would do such things. Oh, shame on you. But yeah, so The Omen, which, I mean, The Omen is a really great horror film. There were a couple of silly moments in it, like the moment where um, Gregory Peck and David Warner are sitting in the coffee shop trying to connect, you know, the speech about you know, creating armies on either shore, and David Warner's trying to say, well, that must represent the foundation of the common market, and that's the one point in the album where you go, no, I'm sorry. I can deal with all the other stuff, but that's a bit too far. The, the film avoided becoming preposterous because of the fact that Gregory Peck was, you know, a seasoned Hollywood actor, and he brought a sort of subtlety and a level of of gravitas to the performance that made you really believe that he was Robert Thorne. Yeah, not this, a, however, not he, a very nice man. No, I mean, he sort of, I think he changes over the course of the film, in, and this is the omen still, uh, from being a sort of haughty, cold man to actually realising that you know, he's trying to make a difference. I mean, that's the way he responds to, to Damien's activity. So he had sort of weight in that film, but in this he is kind of hamming it for all his work. You know, he's scowling at the camera, he's spitting out his lines in a German accent which kind of wanders all over the place and he does end up chewing a lot of the scenery. Then you get Laurence Olivier who is equally right but his accent wanders a lot more and bizarrely enough did you know that he was actually nominated for an Oscar for this performance? Yes I did yes. Which I suppose it's kind of proof that both the film and the Academy have got a bit sillier with age. <laughs> yeah. So but like I say the performances hold the key to either understanding or enjoying the film because if you obsess about the fact that there's two great actors just hamming it for the sake of it, then you are going to sit there feeling annoyed. But if you kind of see it as, well, that these are two greats, both of them, well, Laurence Livy in his 70s, Peck in his mid-60s, they want to have fun at this stage of their career. Some of that sensation of you know, them having fun will rub off on you, and you actually start to enjoy it in a sort of pulpy B-movie way. I mean, it's sort of epitomized for me by the fight sequence at the end. I mean, um, the circumstances under which it was made, like I say, both of them were quite old. Laurence Olivier had actually recently had kidney surgery, so he was finding it very hard to get to move around, let alone... That sets him well shuffle. up for a fight sequence, doesn't it? <laughs> Sorry, say that again? That sets him up well for a fight sequence. Yeah, I mean, it <laughs> is a case of... It's a case of sort of spot the stunt double. It's very well cut, the fight sequence, but, you know, it's very difficult to believe with that foreknowledge that it was always Laurence Olivier on the floor being strangled by Gregory Peck. So, but, but the fact that you can actually have a fight between those two, it is like seeing your two favourite actors wrestling out for, you know, for the, the prize of being the greatest and hammiest of all time. And it is good fun. There's no other way about it. 
Um, you've also got the supporting cast. I mean, if the, if the fight sequence is a case of spot the stunt double, then the supporting cast is spot the famous face. I mean, I'll, I'll just rattle through a list of these very quickly. Um, one of the murdered fathers who gets sort of, you know, I think he gets strangled earlier in the film, is played by Michael Goff, who was um, the butler in Tim Burton's Batman films. Yeah. The lovely Prunella Scales was in it. Yeah, he plays his wife, uh, who sort of, I think she has a one, she has a walk-on part when she kind of comes in and finds That's him and screams a bit. A little bit different from Forty Towers. <laughs> yeah, you almost expect her to say, Battle! <laughs> <laughs> yes. You've also got, um, there's an there's a Eastern European actor called uh, Walter Gottel, who is best known as playing the, um, the Soviet agent in the sort of 70s era Bond films. You know, he's kind of bald and he often wears glasses. And he plays one of Mengele's oldest allies and gets one of the funniest lines in the film when he, they're having their original meeting. Oh, well, talk, and, uh, talk about a film genre that hams it up. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And uh, there's a, there's a, he gets one of the greatest lines in the film, which is that he's handed this sort of portfolio saying, you know, you must assassinate such and such. And he says, you mean by killing this old male man, I will be fulfilling the destiny of the Aryan race? <laughs> You've also got um, Bruno Ganz, who ironically would actually play Hitler a few years later in Downfall. Did you see Downfall? Uh, no, I don't think I did. No, you, you need to see it if, if you haven't, because it's a very interesting film about the last days of Hitler. So he shows up, like I said, in the battle exposition role of, you know, the, the scientist who explains how cloning works so he can join the dots in the plot. And then, of course, you've got the, the performance of the kid, Jeremy Black, who basically goes through a multitude of actions in one very bad haircut to play all the clones of Hitler, and he actually does a pretty good job. So the performances are pretty good. You've also got your fair share of kind of B-movie uh, special effects to make it, which sort of make it more charming and endearing. I mean, you've got fairly standard stuff like um, a dummy being thrown off a dam to replicate somebody falling or um, people falling strangely onto mattresses after they've been shot. And also there's the, the ending where sort of Peck meets a sticky end, which, well, I don't want to give too much away, but it involves Alsatians and fake arms. And they are not nice dogs. No, they're not. I mean, I, I'm, I have something about German Shepherds anyway, so that seems quite scary for me. But, uh, you know, for, if you're a, a sort of B-movie horror fan, then that scene is quite enjoyable, simply for kind of seeing all the, uh, all the special effects, even if some of them are quite uh, obvious. Now, within these final scenes, the boys from Brazil attempt, and it does, in its fairness, partially succeed, to touch on the kind of serious issue at the heart of this story, because it is a film in amidst this, this relatively ridiculous plot about the danger of fascism or tyranny returning if people forget about it. I mean, there's a sequence where um, Gregory Peck's character, Joseph Mengler, is holding Ezra Lieberman hostage, and he talks about, you know, uh, they're showing films about the war on television. People are fascinated. The time is ripe. And it's that whole idea of a generation of sort of forgotten about the Nazis, no one wants um, Ezra Lieberman to do his work anymore because they want to just put the past to bed, but in doing so they've sort of forgotten how to deal with this kind of threat. Um, there's also an argument in the film about sort of preemptive justice and the argument of, you know, if we know what someone or something will do in the future, is it more moral to stop it now or to let it play out and let the future generation decide for themselves and make their own destinies? And the film does quite well in showing both sides of this argument, because in a, there's um, a sequence at the end where Lawrence Levy destroys the list of the other parents that he was tracking down, so we think, okay, it's all going to be all right, no, these boys are not going to turn into Hitler or whatever. And then it cuts to 
the uh, the last boy that Mengele had sort of tried to, uh, whose parents Mengele had killed, developing photos of Mengele being killed in his darkroom and sort of staring hypnotically at the paintings and the photos rather than you think, oh no, what have we done? So it does it does that sort of dichotomy very well, and that's a classic Ira Levin thing of you know everything's going to be okay, and then there's one massive twist at the end which sends you, you know, sends a massive chill down your spine. So um, just to sort of round up so we can get on to the new releases, um, it's very enjoyable and it has a couple of very interesting ideas. And although it is a little bit silly, it does bring those ideas to the fore while providing a lot of entertainment. I mean, it's not as good as Rosemary's Baby or The Stepford Wives, either as an adaptation of Levin's work or as a deeply disconcerting piece of filmmaking. I mean, Stepford Wives, although it is a bit creaky in places, is still very unnerving. And Brian Forbes is a very underrated director. But once you sort of embrace the hammy exterior of the boys from Brazil and forgive the obvious shortcomings in terms of, you know, makeup and budget and so forth, it is it emerges as something which has got brio, bombast, and in the end it's got a little bit of bite. Okay. So it's really good. Two other um, Oscar nominations that he got, which perhaps a bit better deserved than Laurence Olivier's, was uh, film editing and original music score. What a music score. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember who who wrote the score, actually, but uh, it... Uh, it's a very good um, Herman-esque score, in, a, yes. in the way of uh, Byrne and Herman, who it's, wrote uh, a lot of Hitchcock. It was Jerry Goldsmith who wrote it. Oh, uh, that's why, yes. yeah, Jerry Goldsmith is yes. a fantastic composer. Another interesting fact is that it was, uh, it was a Lou Grade yes, financed production. I, I almost started this hour by playing the Thunderbirds theme tune, <laughs> and I thought, even for me, that's a step too far. Well, can we finish on that? <laughs> we might indeed. Yes, you'd prefer that to JLS, wouldn't you? Well, given the choice, wouldn't most people prefer <laughs> Thunderbirds in any situation? Shall we take a little break? I think we should. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Right, that was Eliza Doolittle and uh, Pack Up. I love that song. Absolutely love it. Yeah, it's not too bad, actually. Yes. I, was, I first saw you it... You expect me to violently disagree? No, no, I'm... Hope you'd agree. It's, uh, I first saw it at uh, Newcastle City Hall um, uh, about uh, two years ago, I think it was, and I thought she'll be famous, and she was. So there you are. You I discovered. You're in talent spotting ahead of you, Richard. I discovered her. Yes, you did. Yes. Shall we uh, look forward to next week's cult classic? Yeah, we'll do John Carpenter's The Thing. Right. And I have a little preview, which now we will play when I intended it to play. Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live. Inside. Where no one can see it. Or hear it. Or feel it. I know I'm human. And that's where we leave it for this week, don't we? Yeah. It should be good. Really chilling just doing that bit of it. Yes, indeed, yes. Yes. Right, um, have, let's have a look at the uh, the new releases then, and uh, the first one has got, I have to say, a cast list to die for. It really has, doesn't it? It's uh, Jack Black, Angelina Jolie, Jackie Chan. It's Kung Fu Panda 2. Yeah, um, latest uh, DreamWorks adaptation, uh, latest DreamWorks um, film, a uh, sequel to Kung Fu Panda, which came out about three years ago. Did you see the first one? I didn't, no. Right, I didn't either, but I heard it was pretty good. So the story is... Um, like I say, it stars Jack Black as the eponymous Kung Fu Panda, who I think in the film is called Poe. Um, not a reference to the Teletubbies, obviously. Um, he, he's now living his dream as uh, the dragon warrior, who's, you know, I think he became that at the end of the first film, you know, the, protecting the Valley of Peace alongside his uh, fellow Kung Fu masters. Um, but then his, uh, 
his life of, well, according to the RT, his life of awesomeness, which I think tells you about the audience of the film, um, he comes across this formidable villain who has a secret unstoppable weapon that he's trying to use to control and conquer China, and in doing so, destroy the art of Kung Fu, and all the kind of Jack Black and his friends have to band together to sort of stop him and save the day for martial arts everywhere. So you think we're possibly not the target audience? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely built towards sort of... Um, families with young children. I mean, the thing about DreamWorks for me is that they they started out quite good because they made Shrek, which yeah. was the, you know, the, the, the classic animation which sort of took the sort of the fairy tales and did them in a postmodern ironic way, you know, the great, all the great jokes in the first Shrek 2, and even Shrek 2, although that's slightly not as good, but so very, they managed to be very funny and appealing to children and adults while working on slightly different levels. The problem is that since the Shrek series has sort of ripened and rotted, DreamWorks have become known for making animations that are very sort of fleetingly interesting, but they, they date very badly. And like I say, I haven't seen the first Kung Fu Panda, although it did get pretty good reviews. And I think that there is a, there is a real chance that this will be sort of, like I say, in one ear and out the other, and the fa including the fact that it's filmed in 3D. But... You know, Jack Black doing comedy is pretty good. I mean, he's been a bit—he's been a bit quiet recently, actually, because he—he was in that horrible film uh, Year One with Michael Cera, which didn't do either of them any favours. But uh, you know, he's pretty enjoyable. I'll see pretty much anything with Angelina Jolie in, and as as passable weekend entertainment, it will do its job and take money. I'm sure it'll take a lot of money. I can imagine it being very popular indeed. But yes. uh, and interesting with DreamWorks, they do do good casting, don't they? And, they uh, do good casting, but the problem is that often that casting is designed to pull in the adults, and they don't leave anything left for the children. Yeah, no. But, I but no, I think in this case, it's all, they get it just about all right, and uh, it will take money. It'll be interesting to see whether it takes more money in two D, though. Right. It's one of the big three D tent poles of the summer. Right. Talking about uh, interesting casting, Rebecca De Mornay, Mother's Day. Yeah, which is which starts much more inauspiciously. It's a remake of the 1989 uh, Troma B movie. Uh, are you familiar with Troma at all? Uh, no. Um, Troma was a, a video company um, set up in the early 80s, basically to exploit the, the newfound video market and the, the advent of the blockbuster. What they did was they took, they took sort of blockbuster ideas uh, sort of like you know, Jaws and Star Wars and so forth, and tried to make sort of cheaper straight-to-video versions that people could sort of watch for, you know, had ridiculous titles like um, Surf Nazis Must Die or Teenage Nymphoid Barbarian in Dinosaur Hell. And you sort of bought them thinking, okay, it's great, it's going to be fun. And then you realized that the only good thing about it was the title. Um, so this is a remake of a 1989 film, which I haven't, again, I haven't seen, although I, it's, I've seen you know, bits and pieces of the Troma Stable, and they are a bit rubbish. Um, Rebecca De Mornay, who um, I think, am right in thinking, was in Risky Business all that all those years ago. Yes, I think she was. Because yes. she's the one who seduces Tom Cruise, isn't she? In, in the middle of that film. Yes, that's yeah. right. So she plays um, a demented mother who has uh, two sons. But rather than um, in the original film, you have them sort of terrorizing a couple of hikers who uh, you know, sort of get lost in the woods and they're found and so forth. In the remake, they're terrorising the neighbours, so it, it sort of, it sort of taps into the wave of what are known as home invasion films, which started with um, Michael Haneke's Funny Games, which was later remade into English uh, by the director. Also, things like um, The Cottage or Cherry Tree Lane. Basically, the idea of quiet suburban house, usually middle class, uh, gets invaded by a bunch of criminals, and usually there's quite a bit of torture. Um, it's not it. 
doesn't look all that promising. I mean, Rebecca de Mornay is a good screen presence, and she can do that sort of turned-up, demented stuff pretty perfectly well. Um, but in the end, it is, um, you know, for something with its origins in trauma and that's helmed by, you know, one of the directors from the Saw series, you're not exactly looking at a horror classic. Right. Next one. The trailer for this is amazing. A sci-fi story centred on the sexual awakening of a group of college students. I guess it's either going to be a cult classic of the future or complete rubbish. Well, it's sort of in between, actually. Um, it's, we're talking about Kaboom which is uh, the new film from Greg Araki. Do you remember when we talked about Savage Grace last week? I mentioned a thing called New Queer Cinema. Yes. Yeah. Um, which I, I said was kind of Tom Carlin and Todd Haynes. And Greg Araki sort of, he's one of the lesser filmmakers in, the, in that um, field. I mean, he's made a lot more films than either Tom Haynes or Tom Carlin, but he, you know, he, he's less directly affiliated with that. So it's his... It's sort of coming-of-age film. You have um, a character called Smith, played by uh, Thomas Decker, who is an 18-year-old film student who is uh, openly bisexual and has a very strong, to the point of being ravenous, sexual appetite. And if you've seen the trailer for this, a lot of it is just him bonking people. Um, so you have this guy who, you know, he gets an attractive new roommate who actually looks like he's walked out of Thor. And then the film gradually takes a sort of science fiction twist and you have stories involving sort of weird characters with masks, nuclear weapons, and possibly the end of the world. Um, it's a very unusual film because it, it does sort of consist of little bits and pieces. I mean, it's, it sort of starts off like something like Velvet Goldmine or I suppose that film um, 54 from the late 80s, which was about Studio 54, in which you had a young male protagonist going into the club, which was run by, um, I think, Michael Myers plays the, uh, the owner of 54 in that film, and sort of looked at his sexual awakening alongside the rise and fall of the, the famous club. Um, so it sort of starts off like that. Then it sort of drifts into, I suppose, no, from Velvet Goldmine territory, it gradually drifts towards things like Donnie Darko, and I suppose Halloween 3 season of The Witch, which had the whole plot about... Um, know um masks being being filled with these microchips that can manipulate people's brains and also i suppose the work of philip ridley because of the role of masks in heartless and heartless is a really great film i think in the end the film doesn't add up to very much in the sense that you'll have little individual bits that you'll find funny bits that you'll find creepy bits that you'll find interesting but it isn't a cohesive narrative whole and i think it's something to see if you're interested in new queer cinema or the work of Greg Araki, but it's not going to bring anyone, any new fans to his attention. Do you think it'll be a big seller? I think it'll do all right. I mean, I don't know whether it's getting a wide release or not, but um, certainly if it, if it plays at the time side, it'll find a pretty good audience. Right, OK. And I guess our final one looks of it's going to be a time side one as well, Point Blank. Yeah, which is um, Film of the Week. It's the new film from um, Fred Cavallier, who previously made um, Anything for Her or Poor Elle, which is a French thriller remade um, earlier this year as The Next Three Days, starring uh, Russell Crowe and directed by Paul Haggis. And um, the, so the story is you have um, a young um, male nurse working at a hospital whose wife is kidnapped in front of his eyes and he's knocked out. When he comes to, he gets a phone call saying, no, we've kidnapped your wife. You've got three hours to help us by smuggling uh, a convict friend of ours out of your hospital because he's being treated for something. And if you get a get him out within three hours without you no know, being detected by the police or secret services then we will give you your wife and unborn child back if you don't manage it in three hours we're going to kill them both so no you set it up as a very good solid efficient thriller plot and then that plays out over the best part i think it's about 84 minutes 
And it's the song of the week, first of all, because you know, it, it's, it does what it says on the tin as a proper thriller. You know, it takes a simple idea, it plays with it you know, from every conceivable angle, and it's very exciting. But also, I mean, Cavalier, from his previous film, because this is only his second feature, he has an ability to take something which on the surface is rather contrived or rather generic and actually find the proper human emotions for this. I mean, anything for her, which was a story about um, uh, a man's wife being sent to prison for a crime she didn't commit and him trying to break her out by sort of, you know, uh, going around the outside asking for help. Um, the thing about that was it took a story which could have been a bit sort of, you know, a bit neither here nor there as it was in the remake and actually looked at the the character development of the character, you know, the state of mind of the man and the woman and the level of, you know, obsession on the one hand or remorse or grief. I mean, it's a bit like um, the last sequences in Three Colors White, the Krzysztof Kieślowski film, when um, the woman has been sent to prison and the man sort of standing outside um, just kind of asking her, well, are they going to get married again once she gets released? And she kind of holds up her hand next to the prison bars with her, their wedding ring back on, which means, you know, we've gone through this film together and now I've fallen in love with you again, let's get married. So I think that it's a, it's a good, solid thriller with an interesting idea at the start of it, and, you know, it plays out, like I say, over 84 minutes, so it doesn't overstay its welcome. And, no, it's, it's not going to be groundbreaking, but I think Cavalier is a director to watch, and the central performances look pretty convincing. So, film of the week. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I think that, obviously, Kung Fu Panda 2 will take the most money out of the new releases, but if you get the chance to see Point Blank at an independent cinema, particularly at the time side, it should be very good. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, all those miles away. That's <laughs> quite all right. Right. So, come on, then, uh, three Thunderbirds films. Uh, I think one, one very good, one so-so and one dreadful. Um, <laughs> try, try and work out which is which. What's, what do you think of the, uh, the infamous Thunderbirds films? Um... I haven't seen the first two, can I confess that? Although I've, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the TV series. Yes. I think most people are, and it, no, I'm, I love the fact that it's constantly repeated on BBC Two. Yeah. Um, oh, well, I have to remind you, it's the greatest um, film um, uh, joke ever was um, Alan Tracy up on, um, up on an asteroid with Lady Penelope. Or was it the moon? Something like that. And um, bemoaning his lot as the youngest member of the family and saying, could you pull a few strings for me, Penny? Ah, very good. Yes. Have you seen um, the, uh, the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore parody of Thunderbirds called Super Thunder Sting Car? No, I didn't. It, it was one of the, the big sketches they did on that only, but also where they actually had characters walking around with strings. Yes. And they deliberately out-synced the dialogue so it looked like the, um, you know, the Thunderbirds' mouths, which are sort of controlled by magnets. Yeah. It looked as if they weren't working properly, yes. but it was very funny seeing Peter Cook dressing up as the hood. And there was an absolutely brilliant um, stage performance of Thunderbirds um, back in the early 90s, I guess it was. Um, and it was done in... Um, uh, theatre near to Blackfriars in London, and it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, because they uh, did. A, yeah, because it yes. was uh, that was the thing that sort of revived interest in Thunderbirds, yeah. and then of course you get the yeah. the Blue Peter Tracy Island phenomenon. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Yeah. Maybe shall I track down one of the Thunderbirds movies, and we'll do it in a few weeks. Yeah. Time. So film number one was Thunderbirds Are Go, which yeah. I thought was really good and uh, very well pitched. Uh, then there was Thunderbirds Six, which was good fun, but a bit sort of stupid. And then we got the live-action one. Yeah, which I think Jerry Anderson and his ex-wife have actually disowned. So that <laughs> sort of says all you need to know, really. Yes, it'll have Jeff Tracy turning in his grave. It was <laughs> dire, absolutely dire. Yeah. But, uh, never mind, shall we have a theme?
Yes, I think so. Yeah. And goodbye, Daniel. I shall see you next week, yeah. Richard. Cheers, bye. Bye. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.